Hello and welcome to the Film Comment Podcast. I'm Violet Luca, digital editor, and today I'm joined by... Nicholas Rapold, uh, editor of Film Comment. And today we're going to be discussing the May-June issue, which is now available online, and we'll be reaching subscribers who lovingly subscribe to print very soon. Why don't we start with the cover? So this is the May-June issue, and on the cover we have Sunset Song, which is the new movie by Terrence Davies, although in a way it's not really the new movie because he already has another movie he did called A Quiet Passion but uh, let's just stick to Sunset Song for now. Sunset Song is a beautiful adaptation of a series of Scottish novels. This I guess draws mainly upon one of them. Mm. Jonathan Romney did a a long uh, interview with him about the film and about some themes in his work and just kind of drew out from Terence Davies the tensions in the film, you know, depicting uh, a young woman's coming of age and depicting just how her you know, reckoning with desire and with the not always friendly uh, environment of a male dominated, you know, rural society. That's also super religious. That's also super religious without, of course, abandoning Terence Davies, his passion for depicting religious community mm-hmm. uh, in, in film and uh, one of the you know best sequences in that movie takes place in a church. He also talks to him about the look of the film which I think is particularly yes, fascinating. Very true. Um, Davies of course very exacting in, in his attention to, to every detail and they have a, a nice exchange where Romney asks the question that's burning on everyone's mind <laughs> which is the difference between the gloaming and magic hour. Yeah. Um, But to find out about the distinction between that, you'll have to read the interview. Don't Google it. Don't Google it. That's the coward's way out. Um, And then we also have a lovely feature about Chantal Ackerman by Amy Taubin, who knew Chantal for many years and has some pretty interesting insights into her work. Uh, Obviously, there's been a great deal of coverage, you know, uh, essays and and remembrances and, you know, lots of wonderful criticism written about her. So with this essay, I think Amy was taking, you know, a different approach. Um, That's kind of a, a really, I found, moving combination of very close reading, especially from the film The Rendezvous of Anna, and then just, you know, uh, really coming to grips with uh, Ackerman's deep emotional attachment, intertwining conflict uh, with with her, her mother. I, I almost hesitate to go into it too much because Amy really just, it's a very nuanced reading. And I think in, in a way you haven't really seen, I mean, a lot of people say Ackerman is great. I'm certainly one of them who has, has said that. But uh, you, I think you get something really special here with Amy's essay. And then you also did an interview. I did. I did. This is for an article that was kind of a team effort. And this is an example of an article that kind of looks ahead a bit. It's about a movie called Evolution, directed by Lucille Hadzihelilovich, who also directed Innocence. Some of our listeners perhaps remember Innocence. came out about a decade or more ago about a mysterious girl's school or convent um i'm not even 
I th- it's really ambiguous what it yeah. is because yeah. they sort of appear and disappear. Yeah. And yeah, there's and this code of ribbons. Yeah. It's really excellent. Everyone should go see it. <laughs> yeah. Her newest one, Evolution, and we have a mid-length essay by Laura Kern about that that really just is is just a very th- thorough picture of what the movie's about which is namely this strange seaside village where it seems to consist only of boys and women or I don't single know, moms single moms but <laughs> i mean ominous <laughs> uh, who are all dressed uh, alike and kind of look a bit alike and everything's a little gloomy and, and, and brown and and it's not clear what happens to you when you grow up or, or how you grow up or if you grow or up if you grow up to go back to how we got into this i did an interview with ms hadza halilovich um out of toronto which is where the film premiered last september and just had loads to say about inspiration for the film some of which is personal so that's hopefully a ripping good read (laughs) and she also has some insights about the challenges of making movies and why it might have taken over 10 years to to make her latest feature and then returning to the uk we have alan clark who was um as david fear writes a real pioneer or a really distinctive voice in the landscape of (laughs) taxpayer funded television right Alan Clark is a television director for British television, mostly at the BBC, although also at ITV. Um, Which means independent television. Independent television, carefully labeled as independent television. We sussed that one out. <laughs> yeah. And what's happened is the BFI has opened the vaults. Uh, it's always pretty hard to see older British television. Certain swaths of it are just have been, you know, kind of hard to see and this has been one of them so or literally taped over or right yes <laughs> i mean the, the strange thing about television studios is that they would have a habit and this is common to a uh, lots of television studios they would have a habit of taping over tapes when they needed to use them or just losing them because people didn't think that people would want it. i guess there wasn't going to be a market for them but in any case um, people have certainly known about alan clark his strengths for a long time there was a big retrospective of his work in the 90s and there is a big Faber and Faber book about him and the BFI released just a ton of of, of his work I think it's they tried to be as comprehensive as they could and it's pretty impressive and David Fear just wrote about it from the perspective of well people know Alan Clark as this director of these Scum, basically. Yeah, scum. The very most, the, probably the, undeniably his most yes. famous. Scum about a Borstal boy. Yes. Um, Starring good old... Um, Ray Winston. Yes. A, a life of yeah. sylphin Ray Winston. <laughs> well, I don't know if I'd go that far. But he, was, <laughs> uh, he wasn't giantly fat, basically. That's what I'm trying to say. <laughs> I just had to immediately go to that. I, uh, um, he was... He was ready for battle, which is what happens in Scum a lot. Uh, and then Made in Britain was another one that was somewhat known, starring a young Tim Roth. And then Elephant is another film of his that's that's better known. It's it's a film where Alan Clark was really pushing, I guess, television and, and also the use of long takes and, and lack of exposition to kind of new lengths. 
But what David Fear does in this article is he looks at those landmarks, but also looks at lesser-known sides of Alan Clark. He's a director who has been written about, so this tries to you know acknowledge that, but also you know introduce you to what was so striking and uncompromising and formerly innovative about about his work. Yeah. So what's next? I don't know. You tell me. You tell tell you well. I mean, there are plenty of wonderful things in this issue. We've been making our way through the features, but there's of course also a very insightful documentary column, uh, "Make It Real," the latest from Eric Hines. And this one's about this strange, or to me strange, or maybe no longer, as I've left that naivete behind. (laughs) But uh, the practice of documentary where you see written by in the credits, and then immediately people wonder, how do you write a documentary? Because it's just filming reality. So what Eric does here is decipher what that means and then how there is really an art behind the writing of a documentary, whether that means the voiceover or something else. That's just a little detour to talk about one of our columns. But jumping right back to the features, segueing into a feature that's actually about nonfiction. Mm-hmm. The Other Side is a new film by Roberto Minervini, which I saw last year at Cannes. We also waxed poetically about this in the um, Art of the Real podcast. Yes. And uh, well, there's a whole essay about it by Nick Pinkerton, who just gets into the real the feel of uh, Minervini's approach, which is an interesting docu-fiction approach. Documentary in the sense that he's chronicling people's lives, but there's also kind of a creative, dramatic aspect in how he works out what what he will be shooting and and how he will be shooting and what the scenes kind of will be. Yeah, like the arc of their characters. Yeah, although this is a film where he, as, 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 as Nick explains he kind of sabotages an idea of uh, any idea of an arc because the film is bifurcated in a very interesting way. And Nick talks about that, how part of it is following this couple who are addicted to... This is not their foremost identifier, but they are a couple who are very much in love. That would probably be the first most noticeable thing about them. But they are also drug users, and that that's part of the film. But that's the first part of the, of the film. The second part is kind of dives into the the patriotic culture. Um, This all is taking place in in Louisiana. And so you get this really, you get a portrait that is really emotionally draws you in, but also you feel like you're getting a sense of, I I hate to say this because I don't think Nick claims this, so maybe I shouldn't, but I I feel you you get uh, a sense of some struggles in in American identity. But actually, since this is about Nick's essay, not, not for me to editorialize, so to speak. But you <laughs> but you're the editor. <laughs> no, but no. I, I want to stick to what he's saying here, which um and anyway, it's it's a great, really eloquent piece. So I encourage people to read that. And if you want, as as an addendum, i I did an interview with Minervini uh, last year at Cannes, and that'll be online, um, where he talks a bit about his uh, his methodology and some of the dramaturgy I was describing before. So that's 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 Nick Pinkerton's essay, and then we have Another essay by Howard Hampton. This is on the occasion of High Rise, which is a new film by Ben Wheatley, which our, our listeners probably know from his, you know, somewhat even experimental genre films. Sightseers is, is one that comes to mind. Um, a Field in England. A Field in England is just kind of detonates any idea of like a historical drama. It, I mean, it's not even going in that direction at all. It's... it's a real head trip. 
His latest high rise is an adaptation of a J.G. Ballard novel. And the point of comparison most people have for Ballard movies would be Crash, the David Cronenberg film, one of my favorite Cronenberg films. And what Howard Hampton does here is he kind of describes what High Rise is doing and where it fits in in a lineage of dystopias. But then he does something really special. He talks about the possibilities a dystopian fiction allows for a director the kind of creative opportunities and the sense of a total vision that designing a dystopia and conceptualizing it and theorizing through it, what that lets a director do. So obviously that takes him a bit to Kubrick, takes him to Godard um, with Alphaville, you know, just speaking, you know, generally about films about the future. Another interesting essay. And then the, I guess the final thing on the lineup for May, June. The final feature. The final feature in the lineup. Yes, we, we've just been describing the longer pieces. There, there are lots of smaller goodies and our usual array of reviews. And Violet, you have actually written one of the shorter pieces about Laura Poitras's Whitney yes. exhibition. And I admit my not criminal past. That's I dive right. into my not criminal past. That's right. You, you come out as... <laughs> not having had a criminal past. <laughs> so that's a really reassuring to our readers who I think are probably at any given moment concerned about whether they're reading the work. Who is writing these of things? convicts. Yes. And uh, yeah, so that's that's quite interesting. And there's also just a moment where I can mention how uh, some of these things we have in, in the magazine are going to be elaborated on on the website and in some ways in our podcast for example, we have a short thing on ironic soundtracks, which will have a feature on the website where you'll be able to watch a video essay that further illustrates this idea of ironic soundtracks. And that also brings us to the last feature about Jean-Marie Straub and Danielle Ouillet, and written by the late lamented scholar Gilberto Perez. And this is just just a beautiful combination of tribute and a definitive look at Straubier, who are just kind of paragons of artistic rigor. But I think um, what's shown in this essay is, is how much they care about a sense of art and history that really feels lived and, and, and not mediated in some false way. And it's just written in a very beautiful voice. So I, I do encourage you to read that. I thought I wasn't going to summarize that one, but there I, I tried anyway. Um, but if you were interested in more about, this is another example, if you're interested in more about this, you should... Just carry on listening. Just carry on listening. Don't hang up. <laughs> do not switch the dial. Do not do any of those anachronistic analog things. And you can also look at our website where we'll have uh, one or two primary documents uh, of writings by this filmmaking duo. So does that bring us to the end of the issue already? I don't think so. No, what happened? <laughs> okay, what did I miss? I thought I went over everything. I don't want to give everything away. No, you don't have to. You we got to sell some magazines here. <laughs> Why did you choose to have Sunset Song as the cover? Uh, that's a good question. Always a good question. Always something that we really wrestle with. Uh, you know, what to choose is our cover story. And I mean, I think in this case, it's just a wonderful, beautiful and very moving drama that shows that Terrence Davies has lost none of his strengths and, and in some ways has kind of deepened them. And that definitely in terms of the new releases that were coming out, a real standout. Mm -hmm. 
so uh, yeah, we jumped at the chance of, of being able to have that as a cover story. As with every issue, it, there's always an interesting opportunity to have articles that kind of talk to each other a little. There's an interesting echo between maybe the Sunset Song interview and the Evolution interview. Uh, again, hugely different films and filmmakers, but they are both stories about coming of age. Uh, so that's it's kind of interesting to see two vastly uh, different ways into that um, from two different artists. And then likewise, the Ackerman essay and the essay on Minervini's The Other Side, I think in a way you're looking at two different points on a long history of nonfiction innovation. It's a great magazine and everyone should read it. <laughs> All right. Any parting shots? It's, it's nice to have a chance to talk about the magazine like this, but there's really no substitute, I want to underline, to reading <laughs> our writers' writing. Violet, why are you laughing at that? No, I, it, was, it was actually, uh, it was fun to, I'm going to say it was fun to write. Yeah, this, I, I think so. These are all really fun I, You know, I, I don't want to, I don't want anyone to take what I'm saying as a substitute for the very carefully thought out and written um, essays we have here. Um, so, oh, as always, I really, you know, I go on and on about, the writers we have, but I really, you know, I really cherish their work. There, I said it. Oh. So, there you have it. There you have it, folks. Well, on that big, gushy, loving note. I'm sorry. <laughs> Should I just flip off the world? <laughs> just to sort of balance things off? I will not. I will yeah. not. This was um, oi comment. <laughs> <laughs> That's a reference to the Alan Clark article. Yes. And if, and if you find out what that reference is for... You receive no prizes. You receive no prizes, <laughs> but just a satisfaction that will be with you till your dying day. Yes. Well, thank you, Nick. Thank you, Violet. In our next segment, we expand on Gilberto Perez's article on Streboulet. One of the key filmmaking partnerships of the 20th century, the husband and wife team met while film students in Paris and made 24 films together over 43 years, primarily in Germany and Italy. The duo were dedicated to portraying the minutiae of history, rather than major events or monolithic concepts. To quote Perez, they stage history and have it performed in a way that keeps it at a distance, at a remove from the present, because they want us to recognize it as a document of its time, just as they want us to recognize its cinematic staging and performance as a document of a later time, and just as they want us to recognize our own situation as spectators at a still later time, end quote. Although Strobulet's films are often labeled, quote, difficult cinema, there are many working to counteract that view and elucidate their rich meaning, including Ted Fent and Josh Siegel, who joined myself and Dan Sullivan to discuss the upcoming retrospective of their work at the Museum of Modern Art. I'm Dan Sullivan. Uh, I'm a programmer the Film Society of Lincoln Center, and a contributor to Film Comment. Since, like, 2011? All right. I think. And? I am Ted Fent. I suppose I do a number of things. I'm here as the editor of Jean-Marie Strove and Danielle Ouillet, the Austrian Film Museum's new book. And Josh? Uh, I'm Josh Siegel. I'm a film curator at the Museum of Modern Art. Had the great pleasure of being on the selection committee that included Ted Fentz films in New Director's New Films, our annual festival with Lincoln Center. 
Yeah. Yay. You're yet- Had to give you a plug. <laughs> yeah. I'm going to function as the primary inquisitor. <laughs> We're here to discuss uh, Strabwee on uh, nearly the eve of their uh, first complete North American retrospective at the Museum of Modern Art running for one month starting May 6th. You guys were both involved, so heavily involved. So who better to discuss Strab Wie with? Also the subject of a feature in the upcoming issue of Film Comet Magazine, the May-June issue. Yeah, true. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, I was, I was hoping uh, we could just begin by having both of you discuss the origins of the whole series and uh specifically i'm curious you know why a strabouille retrospective now in 2016 i would say that this has been several years in the making and uh more abstractly something i've wanted to do for quite some time but one reason we're doing it one impetus is that i think there was a time when strabouille were regulars at film festivals around the world, almost notorious regulars in in terms of their questions and answers and responses to the film's screenings. But now I think that they are less known, and I was hoping that we could introduce them to an entirely new generation of filmgoers. I think that they are... Strap certainly is one of the last surviving filmmakers for whom the placement of a camera has the gravity of a moral decision. Um, I think that they're they're truly sweet, generous. They're filmmakers unlike any other filmmakers who've existed prior to them, and they've been a great influence on a number of contemporary filmmakers. So now is the time. I remember a few years ago, a friend of mine was writing her dissertation on Strabouillet and melodrama, and there were literally three books in English about them, one of which was, she said, was plagiarized entirely from a German book about them. Um, And could you maybe talk about why they weren't as, they sort of dropped off or questions of availability of these films? Well, I think certainly with the help of Barbara Ulrich and a number of people who have been involved with the preservation of the films, we have an opportunity now to present a great many of them in better condition than uh, in quite some time. Certainly when they were released in the States by New Yorker Films, they looked good and they were presented on celluloid and had their premieres in the New York Film Festival and beyond, but there's been a great um, many decades and ensuing decades when many of these prints have deteriorated and now we have a chance to see them as, as good as they'll ever look. In terms of the publication, I think, you know, obviously Ted can speak to that because he's uh, overseen some wonderful new books. But I will say that one of the things that I hope we can correct is this assumption that Straub was working on his own and Danielle Wier was a kind of a handmaiden to, the, to their efforts. I think it's sort of telling that Richard Roud, who at the time was running the New York Film Festival, named his book Jean-Marie Straub with nary a mention of her in the title. Uh, which was one of the first English language books, if not the first, to come out. So I think, you know, we're trying to remedy this by suggesting that they were every bit collaborators on every aspect of the filmmaking process. Well, I suppose what I would add to that is, first in regarding availability of the films, was that they had been distributed by New Yorker Films up until 1986, and just sort of due to... A variety of factors regarding, I think, general things regarding the distribution of foreign films 
the distribution of sort of harder or perceived as harder art house films in the late 80s, the death of Empedocles in 1986, which did nev- not really have a big American premiere, was the last film that was distributed by them. And after that, it was another, I think, close to 10 years before another one of the films was shown in the U.S. And so the availability of subtitle prints became an issue. As as of the late 1980s, there were only two films by them subtitled in English after that, from Today Until Tomorrow, which was shown in the New York Film Festival in 1997, and Sicilia, uh, which was shown in the New York Film Festival as well in 2000, uh, or 1999. And, um, and then after that, nothing was subtitled for, I guess, another nine years until Strobe started working digitally. And so the prints from the New Yorker films era became, as Josh mentioned, uh, severely faded and damaged and needed restoration work because even the negative elements had issues with them which needed digital work, I guess. And so why there are no books, or why there are very few books, the books are Richard Roud's Strobe from 1971, and then a book from the mid-90s by Barton Big called Landscapes of Resistance, which uh, interestingly only addresses their German language films. And then a very, very hard-to-get book from 2003 by a woman named Ursula Böse, who's a German writer, and it was published by a German publisher in English, but very expensive Mm -hmm. and very difficult to attain, obtain. And um, I think that, yeah, I think that it's just they had garnered this reputation in the early 70s because of people who were defending their work at the time who were very politicized and sort of associating the work with a kind of hard structuralism, Brechtianism, a lot of isms, things that sort of maybe would hold, hold people off. And that reputation held and probably made it uh, you know, difficult to write a book about filmmakers whose work was also difficult to access. And um, in the in the new Austrian Film Museum catalog, which you edited, Ted, uh, you have, correct me if I'm wrong, your essays more or less about the history of their reception, mm-hmm. or it contains a history of their reception. Could you could you just talk a bit about how across the entire arc of their shared career and then Strub's solo career, how their re- reception has uh, changed? And also, I'm mean, especially I'd be curious to hear both of you weigh in on this notion that's uh, been, I think, attached to them for as long as they've been around, that the that the films are, quote unquote, difficult, and that that difficulty and that quality of, uh, you know, spectatorship as work has been sort of a key part of the aesthetics or also, but also maybe a key part of why people don't know the films so well. Well, when they were initially brought over by Raud to London Film Festival and the New York Film Festival in 1965 or 66 with Not Reconciled, their second film, they were associated with the new German cinema movement. So people like Herzog, who I, I forget what film he had at the time, but that at 66 and then later in 68 with Chronicle of Anna Magdalena Bach, they were sort of the two big films of the year, I think. Association with the new German cinema helped as sort of a marketing thing, I think. And then they quickly, via certain statements, I guess, and their later adaptation of Brecht as the film History Lessons, sort of being taken up by strands of academia that were becoming stronger at the time, which were, you know, setting certain types of cultural theory, which were big on 
all the things that were popular in the mid 70s, sort of a mix of Marxism, uh, some version of Brechtianism as pushed, at least in the English language world, by Screen, a British journal, mm-hmm. which had somewhat of an influence from what the CAIA was doing at the time. But um, those kinds of associations sort of influence how they were being perceived at the time. But I also think they were doing, you know, they're making films that are from a every perspective very radical. And I wonder that if um, the things that maybe would have been so um, controversial at the time would necessarily have this be so controversial today, probably still be as disorienting. But I think of a film like History Lessons, which has is famous for its these three long sequences in which a character is driving around the city of Rome in the working class districts. And it's just an uncut shot for about eight or nine minutes, three times throughout the film. And I talked to a guy who was at the premiere of this at the New York Film Festival, both at the press screening and the public screening. And he was just sort of talking about the combined booing and walking out of the audience in both of the press and the public uh, screenings. And uh, I wonder if in like the post- Bellatar or a, an eight-minute tracking shot would be as controversial. Probably still be as off-putting to certain people, but I think that the, whatever the reputation was at the time stuck and uh, was difficult to get away from. I mean, I think you're right, and I also think a reputation once hardened is very hard to to dismantle. I mean, I'm reminded of what Errol Morris said about Frederick Wiseman. Wiseman, of course, always had a reputation for making boring movies because they were so long. And Errol said, long isn't boring, boring is boring. And the fact is that, you know, they, I don't find Wiseman's films remotely boring. There are films that are 90 minutes, 80 minutes that can feel interminable, and films that are five hours that can breeze by. And similarly with Strobelier, I think people are intimidated by the weightiness of the things that they are trying to interpret, whether it's Kafka or Holderland or Montaigne. But the truth is that, you know, just as you can approach a Schoenberg gay tonal music or you can approach Proust or, or James Joyce, you may not understand all the references, you may not understand the syntax and the language, you may not understand the music structure and rhythm, you can still appreciate it on the, on the sensuous level. And I think that their films are extremely sensuous. So it's through the experience, I think, of watching these films in succession over the course of a month that you'll start finding, if you're new to their work, you'll start finding things that resonate. You'll start finding certain kinds of stylistic conceits. You'll find certain ways in which they approach the landscape or sound or their use of music or their use of, of black screen or the way that they, um, as they dynamite, as they would say, they dynamite language in terms of its scansion, in terms of its meter and rhythm. I think all of this stuff may seem intimidating at first. It's like trying to articulate why a good ballet, how to differentiate a good ballet from a bad ballet if you don't have the language of ballet to to support you. But all the interesting things, I think, in art are quote-unquote difficult but immensely rewarding because I think that they're not handed to you so easily. And I would uh, add that... One of the things that people would jump on at the time that would interest the the sort of academics who were interested in the films in the 70s, for example, were formal elements that were that would differentiate the films from the commercial cinema at the time. But no one would ever really talk about, I don't know, the content of the films, for example. For example, 
if you were to read a lot of the criticism from the early 70s, the stuff that was being written in screen about history lessons or about Fortini Cani, you have the sense that these are kind of very theoretical works and that they don't talk about, like, History Lessons is a film that talks about, yes, it talks about Caesar and economics of Rome at the time of Caesar, but it talks about it with very specific everyday examples, the very everyday things that Caesar was involved in, various examples of exploitation and slavery and battles uh, won and so forth. And it's nothing, it's not like abstract economic theory. It's it's talking about concrete things recounted in, um, by people sitting in sort of everyday situations. Um, one of the films that I like the most is Sicilia, which is a film that opens with a sequence where characters are talking basically about what one eats for breakfast in Sicily, how one prepares a salad with oranges, uh, olive oil, pepper, and salt, and the trouble this one character is having in selling the oranges that he's been given. And there's a film, Workers, Peasants, which has an incredible yeah. sequence where the characters stand around talking about how you prepare ricotta cheese and the best wood to burn if you're going to uh, make ricotta cheese over an open fire and how they went out one day to find this wood in the woods and how it was, you know, this kind of community activity. And there's all these elements of the films, the content that was in the text that they're adapting, which first drew them to it and which very often gets overlooked, I think, because people have tended to stress sort of the formal radicality of the films over these other elements, which I think are maybe more, more relatable, maybe, or what are equally important. And I also think one of their radical gestures is to preserve on film certain traditions that were, were um, disappearing. I mean, peasant traditions like the one that Ted just mentioned of making homemade ricotta cheese on a wood-burning fire... You know, they they are interested in history that's inscribed on the landscape, history that is often forgotten or overlooked, buildings that go up in place of caves or areas where resistance fighters held their ground against Nazis, that kind of thing. I mean, I think that one of their one of their intents is to is to preserve memory, to to sustain memory, and that's something that I think we can all appreciate. It doesn't take one needn't be intimidated by these works to appreciate that kind of impulse and also to find aspects of kind of revelation in it. Yeah, and I think in each of the films, the intellectual content is always grounded in this really uh, rigorous adherence to uh, documentary reality. And, you know, history history is not like a succession of sentences on a page for them. It's a physical place that you have to go to and document. And maybe the history that they're interested in uh, is no longer there. But then they also, by going to the place, it, you get the feeling that, that they're tracing where it's gone or uh, what form it's assuming now. But you both cited a number of their literary uh, sources because all of their films are adaptations of a sort. What I'd be curious to hear you both discuss is uh, cinematic forebears. There's kind of an elite handful of directors who uh, Straub talks about in various places. Could you talk about the filmmakers who they look to as models or anti-models, I guess? And then maybe also you could talk about who you think are their spiritual successors, if any. One thing, I mean, Ted, let Ted answer that, but I just want to interject one thing, which is that you know, there's a playful aspect to their work and the references that they make not only to literature but also to music, to film, 
to autobiography, to his events of history, you can think of as a kind of rebus. I think the last film that Straub made from 2015, The Aquarium and the Nation, is in a, in a way like a Jasper Johns rebus, that there are all sorts of encoded references and connections being made to things as seemingly random as Jean Renoir's film La Marseillaise from 1938 and a close-up of a fish tank in a Chinese restaurant in Paris. And what connections do these have? You have to puzzle through them, but it's actually a kind of enjoyable, pleasurable kind of puzzling. And so we can talk about precedents for this in cinema, but I also think we could make reference to things like Jasper Johns um, and that kind of um, uh, um, impulse to make reference to the history of art, the history of cinema, the history of history in a, in a canvas or on a film. And for them, that immediate preference would, of course, be uh, Cezanne. They made two films about and who Ye had discovered as a child, I think at the Louvre, or no, at the Musée d'Orsay, and one of the Bather paintings, and and then sort of became a lifelong obsession with them. And wherever they would travel, they would try to see the Cezanne paintings. When they were in Chicago, they said, we want to see where the Cezanne paintings are, only the Cezanne paintings. When they were in New York in 75, they hitchhiked to the uh, Barnes Foundation in, out in Pennsylvania to see the Cezannes there. Then they trashed MoMA <laughs> when they returned. Yes. There's a wonderful quote. I mean, they, were, they did not suffer <laughs> fools, that's for sure. And there's a wonderful quote I'll offer at the uh, opening night of uh, their disgust. Which the only word I can ever think of with them is their disgust uh, at the way that MoMA had imprisoned or entombed the Cezanne paintings behind glass. And it's a wonderful quote about, uh, but, you know, their appreciation of, of art conservation is actually quite interesting, and yeah. their, their take on it is actually quite interesting. You know, they said that this is intended to protect the paintings, but the reality is, wouldn't it be better to just take a chance that the painting is going to get damaged than to entomb it so that no one can actually appreciate its surface and actually in the process of doing so, perhaps damage the surface of the canvas with the glass. I don't think that MoMA actually did that, but that was what they were speculating. But these are these, these kinds of concerns that seem esoteric for them are matters of life and death. I, I guess if you want to talk about cinematic references too, there's... Strobe had sort of begun his life as a cinephile or a filmgoer as a, with a film club in his uh, hometown in Metz called uh, La Chambre Noire, and he had you know, like many people at the time would, you know, have critics from Paris come and talk about films, and the big films for him at the time were uh, certainly Dreyer's, Day of Wrath, Bresson being a big influence, particularly, uh, I think, the Les Dames du Bois de Boulogne, and for its method of adaptation, um, which certainly is some kind of progenitor for what they would do with adapting texts. And I know that there are also people early on who he was a very big fan of, like Orson Welles, and would later completely reject. But he, there's something where he says in the mid-70s how, you know, you don't need to see every film, you just need to see a few films and know them extremely well. But they continued to see, I think, a, quite a lot of films throughout their career, but maybe rejected most of them on various grounds. Uh, Wee interestingly, was in, in uh, this sort of preparatory class for the film school in Paris with Strobe, and had an interest in making documentary films initially. I think Jean Rouche probably being an influence there 
she handed in her exam blank because the film that they had shown was so disgusting to her. And then when she met Strobe, Strobe had the Vach project and they started working on that. But in terms of people who would be, who have sort of carried on what they're doing, they don't seem to recognize that many people. Even, even you know, the very few people would be people that they were sort of loyal to at the time that they were beginning. There was this film group, actually, that is sort of not, doesn't have a big place in history, the New Munich Film Group, sort of a the version of the New German Cinema that was sort of in Munich where they were living, and there were filmmakers like Rudolf Tomei and Vlado Kristol, and I'm blanking on the name of sort of the big one uh, who is still alive, and... In any case, there were these certain filmmakers who, that at the time, if you read their early, sort of early articles they were writing in Q and, and you don't mean Kluga, do you? Uh, no, I don't mean Kluga. That was a enemy from the beginning. It seems like um, yeah, because uh, they did not have kind words for um, Kluga ever. No, in any case, uh, they sort of remained loyal to this group of filmmakers as like the only, as like the best German filmmakers of the time, and they were never really popular outside of some European festivals. But, you know, obviously they admire Pedro Costa and certainly admired uh, him enough to allow them, allow him to document their work in Where Does Your Hidden Smile Lie? I don't know. They, they really, it's very, there's a, there's a, there's a, there's a talk they did in the Viennale in 2003 where there's a moment where they're kind of saying there's basically no one else that we recognize as a, as a decent filmmaker nowadays. Also, to be honest, I don't know how much they, well, obviously, we is not with us anymore, but Straub really sees anymore. I'm not mm-hmm. sure that he's completely up on contemporary cinema, so um, it's sort of a silly question to ask. I mean, he has a rapport with Godard. He's, he's said sure. interesting things about Godard's work, how stylistically they couldn't be more different, but they had a certain affinity for each other for many, many years. And I think the paradox of a lot of their work is that they can approach somebody like John Ford, who politically might have been very conservative to the point of being right-wing, but embrace him as a master uh, filmmaker. Similarly, Maurice Barr, who is an Alsatian writer, Straub could approach, or Straub Anouye for Lothringen, could approach for his nationalist impulse, his pro-French impulse, against the Germans, even though Barr was, of course, virulent and anti-Semite and anti-Dreyfusard. So there are these paradoxes. These guys are, are self-proclaimed Marxist filmmakers, and yet they can find interesting things, mine certain works of literature or music or film by right-wing artists, quote-unquote, and find very interesting things to say about them. It's one of the appealing things about them, I think, is that you. one of the things you assume is that they're incredibly dogmatic. When you hear Marxist or any of the isms that Ted mentioned, that you assume that they're very knee-jerk about the whole thing, but they're not. I think you wa- if you watch these films in succession, you'll discover that. Another filmmaker that I know they're fond of is Luc Moulet, and they even helped him get distribution for Anatomy of a Relationship in Germany. And I think they, they like filmmakers who, like them, are willing to challenge conventions and not, you know, make the commercial decisions and take, go out on, on a limb and take risks. And I think that they're more into that than, I don't know, some kind of, any kind of convention in any way. Yeah, they were fond of Fassbender early on and collaborated with him. And later in his career in the 80s, they had nothing 
not kind to say about his work, but they just found that it didn't resonate for them. It meant nothing to them. They just found it too commercial and too conventional. Yeah. I think we're coming up against our limit here, but I was just hoping uh, the two of you could highlight any can't-miss screenings uh, within the retrospective. And conversely, if people are coming to Straboule fresh or if they're trying to give them a second shot after trying something they found too rigorous, where's a good place to begin? Well, everyone always starts with Anna Magdalena Bach because it's Bach music. I mean, there's what's not to like. And, yeah, you can't go, um, you can't go wrong with Chronicle Anna Magdalena Bach is an incredibly beautiful film, but I think that another one that Ted mentioned, Cecilia, is also an immensely pleasurable film. We should also mention that there's a, there's a terrific gallery exhibition on view right now at uh, Miguel Abreu that's devoted to frame enlargements of their work as well as some of the moving images installation work. And Miguel has been almost a lifelong trouble, and he's, he's been a passionate, devoted supporter of their films. And so I think this was a wonderful opportunity for him to give them the gift of a kind of exhibition at the same time as the MoMA retrospective. And then in, after the MoMA retrospective, there'll be a tour across the United States and Canada, as well, I think, as the Pompidou and then other um, venues around uh, Europe. I think class relations might be an interesting place to start in that it has a, it's fragmented narratively, but it, you can follow the narrative. It has comic moments and very serious, beautiful moments as well. It's Kafka, but not adapted in the kind of stereotypical way that one associates with Kafka adaptations. And then maybe uh, just as a radical suggestion, Otto, their the Corneille adaptation from 1969, which is their first film in color, and it was Daniel Wiese's favorite of their films. I think Moses and Aaron, perhaps, as well. That was the film that... Uh, we should mention that Renato Berta, the cinematographer, is presenting it with Barbara Ulrich mm-hmm. uh, on the opening weekend on May 8th. Oh, that's There's right. There's going to be a number of special guests, including Ted, uh, presenting a number of the films on the opening weekend, which is the sixth. Including uh, highlight Astrid Offner, their Antigone. Yep. will be introducing Antigone. I think that's Whoa. not to be missed. Yeah. Never presented in 35 in the U.S. before. Thank you both, all three of you, for coming. Hey, no problem. Thanks for, sure. thanks for your interest. Yeah. Come to the movies. Yes. You've been listening to the Film Comet Podcast, produced by Violet Luca and Nicholas Rapold, with music by Greg Anji. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes or Stitcher. Film Comment is a bi-monthly magazine published by the Film Society of Lincoln Center. Since 1962, Film Comment has featured in-depth interviews, critical analysis, and feature coverage of mainstream, arthouse, and avant-garde filmmaking from around the world. Visit us online at filmcomment.com slash subscribe to purchase a digital or print subscription to the magazine. Film Comment, at the heart of film culture for over 50 years. <laughs>